people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name is Alex. Not joined by Sam today, who is uh, still abroad. Um, I'm joined by Daniel Sonnebend, who is a London-based writer and historian. He's been working on telling the story of the of the 43 Group for the past seven years. His new book is called We Fight Fascists, The 43 Group and the Forgotten Battle for Post-War Britain. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alex. Thank you for having me on. Oh, welcome. Um, and obviously today we're going to talk about the 43 Group. It would be a bit weird to have you in to talk about anything else. Um, <laughs> um, just for our listeners, because um, people might not, we have a quite a dedicated anti-fascist audience listening to us, but people still might not be clear about who the 43 group were. So who were they? And uh, why did you spend seven years of your life writing a book about them? What do you think was important about the 43 group? Uh, the 43 group uh, was an anti-fascist organisation that was formed by Jewish, predominantly Jewish, ex-servicemen in 1946 when they returned home from the, from the war front and they saw that British fascists were being allowed to go back onto their streets, resurrect their organisations and their movements and try to and began to start harassing the Jewish community again. And they um, reacted to this with complete, total and utter outrage and decided to defeat the fascists by any means necessary. I've, I've been working on this story for so many years because, honestly, I just loved it. I love these people. They are sort of young men and women. They were audacious. They had a whole load of uh, chutzpah. They were charismatic and they were willing to put themselves out there for a fundamentally vital cause. They were willing to risk injury. They were willing to risk arrest, imprisonment, because they did not believe that a country which had gone to war to fight fascism should tolerate fascism uh, existing on its own streets. 1946 was obviously only very little time after the Second World War had ended. And it, 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 it must seem remarkable to people that, you know, fascism had any kind of swing or sway or energetic vigour on the streets of, of London after, you know, the Blitz and like a whole world war that, that was ended in, in the defeat of fascism. Why were they so energetic in coming back out the gate so quickly? Maybe you could say what they were doing during the Second World War as well. Absolutely. So in uh, May 1940, the British government extended Defence Regulation 18B, which en enabled them to round up and intern the fascists without trial. They saw the fascists as a potential fifth column threat. Uh, and if uh, the Nazis launched a successful invasion of the British mainland, they saw the fascists as potentially undermining morale and the war effort, and they believed that it would be far safer to keep all the fascists interned. Over a thousand fascists were interned at the height of 18B, and they were held in various camps around the country. The largest was on the Isle of Man. What the British government was not interested in doing was re-educating the fascists. Mm. And so the fascists were all basically put in these camps together with only each other for company. And this stoked the fires of their zealotry and they only became more committed, more dedicated. And their anti-Semitism and the hatred of Jews only grew because who else could be blamed for their current predicament than the Jews? So when they emerged, there was... 
they emerged even more zealous and even more rabid um, than they had been when they went in. And the other thing about having this 18B uh, status was that it was, it was a mark against you. So many people were would, would shun you. And so the fascists really only had, well, plenty of fascists only really had each other for company. Mm-hmm. So for many of them, just there was no other option other than sort of going back into their old ways. And, you know, they believe that... I don't think they saw the fascist momentum necessarily having come to an end. They didn't realise that the country has in some way turned against fascism, because in many ways it hadn't. The British people did not necessarily equate um, Nazism and fascism with let's say, a, a soapbox speaker in Ridley Road talking about how it was the Jews' fault that, um, you know, there was more, there was some rationing going on. You know, a, they, there was a difference, or they saw a difference, or they didn't see the similarity between necessarily Nazism and what the British fascists were saying. Similarly, we were also talking about a period where, although there is ostensibly some form of revulsion to European fascism and Nazism. The conditions were perfect for the thriving of a fascist movement. There's rationing, there's austerity, there's potential economic turmoil. Um, the winter of 1947 is one of the bitterest in decades. The conditions are miserable. Then you also have events in Palestine where the British uh, British military are fighting Jewish paramilitaries. That's only leading to an inflaming of anti-Semitism. So all the conditions are there for the fascists to succeed. On top of that, the British public did not see a connection between being anti-fascist and being anti-Nazi and not being anti-Semitic. Right. Britain did not go to war to stop the Nazis' anti-Semitic policies. There was no need to lose your anti-Semitism. So the fascist anti-Semitism did not revolt, did not make the British public recoil in the ways we th- we might think it did. And I guess some of the fascist activists that weren't interned obviously fought in the war as well, and we've decorated war heroes to some extent. So, yeah. And also I would add on to your kind of list of conditions that there was a bunch of uh, young men who were demobbed from the military and coming back to poor prospects who had this kind of camaraderie and fighting kind of spirit in the war and now had were back on the streets of Britain without much to do, I guess, is another factor. Absolutely. And you also have all the young people who, you know, grew up during the time of the Blitz, which is a period of excitement and a period of danger, and you're playing on all these bomb sites, and then the peace becomes boring. So <laughs> when the fascists, in particular an organisation called the British League of Ex-Servicemen and Women, begin holding meetings in East London around areas like uh, Ridley Road in Dalston, and these starts attracting very large crowds, um, they're attracting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young people who are just looking for a bit of action. So certainly there's this sort of... It's providing an outlet for, you know, lots of different people. I'm interested in the in the role that Oswald Mosley played in this new fascist coming out of internment camps because obviously he was just the central figure of post, pre-war uh, British fascism. Um did he was he like eager to get into the fray? I mean, he was like a rich guy. He was an aristocrat. He had country houses all over the place. You know, like, or, or was he? Yeah. What was his kind of uh, attitude towards a new kind of British fascism? 
Uh, Oswald Mosley is released from internment in November 1943 under condition, under very strict conditions. He's released because of health reasons. There's a fear he might die in prison. They don't want to make a martyr of him. Mm-hmm. But they release him and he's not allowed to have any communication with fas- with his former colleagues. He's not allowed to print. He's not allowed to publish. But he begins to slowly make contact with people on the outside. In May 1945, these restrictions are lifted. He calls his closest lieutenants to his uh, Dolphin Square flat in Pimlico, and he tells them that he is going to retire. The time is not yet right for uh, uh, the fascists to come back into the open or for him to come back into the open. Uh, An election has just been called. He knows he doesn't have the time to mobilise politically to have any success in the election. So he decides it is best for him to retire, to farm pigs, to think and to write. So he very much pulls back, but he begins, he's very much operating from the shadows. He has a very strong interest in coming back. He has his lieutenants set up book groups, book clubs all around the country. Mm -hmm. In 1946, he goes on a tour of the book clubs. He starts publishing and he's very much giving nods and winks to various uh, of his lieutenants or various people who are setting up new organisations as they all sort of start vying for his attention and his favour. There's a lot of infighting amongst the fascists. There's a lot of competing. They're all trying to be have the movement which, when Mosley um, returns to politics, he will sort of take on that movement and the person who set it up will be his number two. So he's for from basically 1945 to the end of 1947. He is ostensibly retired, but he's very much involved and he's very much has an interest in what's going on. A particular detail that struck me when I was listening to some um, programmes about the group uh, was the kind of fascist kind of um, misapprehension about what Jewish people were and and how they kind of, um, what they looked like. So you have those classic anti-Semitic stereotypes of Jewish people, uh, but then they were confronted by these quite virile young men and women who were quite happy to punch them in the face. Um, I'm, I'm interested in this kind of, because it, can, it seems like it kind of seems like they're shooting themselves in the foot with this kind of this conception of Jewish people that they've uh, they've got into their heads and they've kind of assimilated. It's, it's difficult to phrase this question, but like how how deeply ingrained was anti-Semitism in these people? Like were they were they like presenting these images as like propaganda, or were they like is this something they actually believed? I think we're talking about people who have been not necessarily immersed but very conscious of anti-semitic images and anti-semitic ideals which have been around for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. the stereotype of the jew is strong it is shylock it is the hunched back tailor and the money lender with his crooked nose he Mm -hmm. is um demonic in some senses he is uh horrendous yet somehow a sexual predator he is very much seen as this sort of, I mean, sometimes portrays an octopus or a spider, animalistic. It's like his Fagin character. Yeah, Fa- yeah, Fagin, Shylock, exactly. And that's, you know, how plenty of people in Britain would have, you know, had a conception of the Jew. When Jewish children were evacuated during the Blitz, I'm 
I believe I've, I've heard stories where, you know, they went to towns and villages where people hadn't seen Jews ever before, and they were asked to show their haunts. So, you know, we have these very strongly... Holy Im- shit. Yeah, we have these very strongly embedded ideas in British culture writ large over what, what a Jew is. And some of these, you know, and plenty of these fascists, you know, have this, and they, you know, this... These, this anti-Semitism that they feel is virulent. It sort of completely, you know, it's like a disease. It runs through them. It takes, you know, it's... Um, like a brain worm, you know, like it's just buried right there deep inside. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So they're very much shaped by the way they're seeing the Jews. Now, there is some debate over whether all the, fa- whether all the fascists were actually anti-Semitic or um, whether they were merely using the Jews as a way to target a particular group of people who were anti-Semitic. There's questions over whether Mosley himself was particularly anti-Semitic, but they very much saw the Jews as an excellent political target, which, you know, you could use to mobilise large sections of society. So when the 43 group comes along, this is an entirely different form of Jew than the fascists had ever encountered before, because possibly many of them had not encountered Jews, or they saw them just, you know, those in East London might have seen the, the religious ones and the black cats, and they think, okay, that's what a Jew looks like. But they don't necessarily equate the Jew with plenty of other people in the East End of London who look exactly like the East Londoners. Mm-hmm. And the Jew, and the, you know, young Jews growing up in East London, in the East End, were facing anti-Semitism from the moment they walked into the school gates. They had to be taught, they had, they grew up fighting. You know, some of the best boxers in Britain in the, this period, in the 1930s and 40s, were Jewish. Um, they were boxers, they were martial artists, they were wrestlers. You know, these were tough people because you had to be tough in order to survive. And, you know, then plenty of them went into the army and really, you know, learned how to be tough. And they were coming out highly decorated, uh, having served in multiple um, theatres of war. These were very, very tough people. Uh, that's that's the particular thing that really struck me when I was doing some research for this programme was um, the, the members of the 42 group did not just get their training in the army. They got their training growing up in East London or growing up fighting uh, every day on their way to school or in school. And yeah, um, it kind of really struck me that 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 particular little fact. Um, well, I think another thing that struck me about the group is how quickly it kind of, I mean, the, how quickly it spread, how quickly it kind of grew, how quickly it got itself organised, how it attracted a newspaper, how it got this massive intelligence network so quickly, um, and it was all over in a very short amount of time as well. How was the group organised in an era without uh, the internet or? whatsapp chats and stuff and and how did it manage to uh, keep itself um active and organized um in this era of like phones and paper and not uh not whatsapp so the group is founded in the winter of uh, 1946 it closes in the summer of 1950 it begins with around 43 members. The group is named after... What one story goes, the group is named after its original 43 members. It quickly grows to having a few hundred members, and then potentially it roughly has about 2,000 members at its peak. 
Um, it has at its heart two men. One is a chap called Jerry Flamberg, who is an ex uh, paratrooper. He's an ex prisoner of war. He is deeply charismatic. He's a great leader. He is well loved by everybody. He leads from the front. And he is the figurehead. He's the shining light. And he's the person who attracts people to the group. But it has a second man called Jeffrey Bernard. Bernard is the sort of organizing genius behind the group. He has a sort of, I think he's quite cold and calculating uh, thinker. He's quite Machiavellian. He's very precise. He's very intelligent. And he is the person who really helps shape this organization along with an executive of um, people, many of whom had, you know, roles of serious responsibility in the armed forces. So these people really know how to organize. And organizing at a period when there is, you know, as you say, no WhatsApp, no vocals, poses a real challenge. Um, group members have to be relied upon to turn up. Um, they're told, you know, this is the time and this is the place and, you, you know, people don't show up. You're several men down and you could be, you know, completely screwed. Um you also have to, it's a completely volunteer organization. It functions or it, it sees itself as a sort of a paramilitary organization, as many of the people were, you know, as I said, ex servicemen. So they see themselves running this organization as a military, but it's completely volunteer. So there's no form of disciplining people. The worst you, the most you can do is kick somebody out or give them a stern warning, but you don't really have any sanction against them. So you have to really hope that people are reliable, that they are just going to turn up. You know, active volunteers come to the headquarters and, you know, see what can I do, when can I do it. The group has um, is split into different sections. There are, uh, it's pr- primarily a London-based organisation, so the sections are based on the areas of London, North, West, Central, South and East, uh, with the East uh, end section being the most notorious. So very much it has section heads and section leaders and and field commanders who can then organise with their smaller cells within those groups. So there's a sort of a pyramid level going on. They're also, you know, they communicate via postcards. Um, If there is a meeting that they really need people to come to, they they write the, the, the address of the meeting and they write the word Arnold on it. And if you saw Arnold on a postcard with a date and a place, then you knew you had to be there. In On times when they weren't necessarily sure where to go, there are a couple of times when they only learnt the locations of meetings on the day, people would gather in each other's homes and often in the homes of the, you know someone's parents because the parents were the people who had the phones. So you might have <laughs> 10, 12 members of the 43 group just crowded around a small living room waiting for a phone to ring. <laughs> The group also has a very um, active uh, secretarial pool. Um, all all the secretaries are women because the group sees this as the best um, way to give women meaningful work within the group. Although there are plenty of uh, women who want to actually go out and have a punch up as well. And this secretarial pool can um, organize and mobilize the group very quickly. So it does find ways to be able to move a few hundred people within a few hours. And uh, what were the activities of the 43 Group once they got organised? 
Um, the 43 Group is primarily a street-based organisation. It sends its members to uh, fascist meetings, originally to heckle and to barrack the speaker to make sure they're not getting uh, their message across. When they see that this is not working particularly well, they begin to use more direct action, going for the platform, finding ways to close meetings, starting fights, generally causing a nuisance, um, hoping that the police will step in and close the meetings. As well as that, uh, they, ha they publish a newspaper called On Guard, which um, is a fascinating paper because it very much tries not to be associated with the 43 group. It doesn't, it doesn't work as a news sheet for the 43 group. It's very interested in uh, prejudice and race-related issues and anti-fascism issues around the world. It reports on lynching in America, what's going on in South Africa at the time. So that's really shown the group was very tuned in and aware of sort of the anti-fascist, anti-prejudice struggle around the world. And on, on, yeah. on guard could be seen as like uh, the way the, like a, an establishment could give a tacit approval. Um, you got people like like Labour MPs writing into the paper and, and certain Church of England figures as well, I think. And it's that's a, that's a really interesting outlet for that that kind of... Section of society. Absolutely. I mean, On Guard also contains a feature one on one issue of um, from Paul Robeson, uh, the African American uh, singer and activist, and it is very much, you know, when the forty when the forty three group puts its address up, it puts its address on On Guard when it begins to hold political meetings. It holds meetings under the aegis of On Guard. It very much leads it to gives it an air of respectability. What it also does, it works as a fantastic way for the 43 group to justify being at fascist meetings. Because if they turn up at a fascist, you know, if someone from Edgware turns up at a fascist meeting at Bethnal Green, the police could say, what are you doing here? You're just here to make trouble. But if they came with a stack of on guards, they could say, well, we're here to, you know, sell this newspaper. You know, we're just exercising our freedom of speech like they are. So it's, it's a really excellent weapon for the group. As well as on guard, they also have a very effective intelligence operation using um, uh, Jews who don't look Jewish or um, non-Jewish uh, members and infiltrating them into fascist organisations. And they get a lot of intelligence. They're the first people to um, uh, reveal that Oswald Mosley plans on coming back in uh, October 1947. They uncover a plan uh, of the fascists to print and publish and sell uh, a fascist newspaper in Germany, which is against the law, and they pass it on to the Foreign Office, and the Foreign Office gets that banned. They run a very effective uh, intelligence operation. Um, and the 43 Group are also active in lobbying and trying to change the way the Jewish community uh, responds to fascists. They believe that the position of the Jewish community is, much, is too passive, um, the establishment is only willing to either lobby or debate. They're not willing to take the fascists on. So they're forever advocating for the Jewish community to be more active in defending uh, the fascists and taking the fight to them. It's an interesting thing you raised up at the end. What were the main uh, Jewish groups um, who were like also in that kind of anti-fascist activist remit? And uh, what, I mean, you've already kind of briefly discussed it as well, but what was their view of the 43 group and what it was doing? So the main organisation, the main establishment organisation was called the Jewish Defence Committee for the Board of Deputies. And they are very much the, the group sees them as the old men who 
are willing to jaw jaw but not war war. They'll sit around and they'll talk. They'll go to um, uh, their lobby MPs. They have a, a meeting with Home Secretary Tudor E. They'll publish pamphlets. Um, they will put on lecture series. They will hire lawyers, perhaps. But they will do absolutely nothing that either uh, breaks the law or brings the Jewish community into any form of disrepute. And the group sees them as... Um, in the Yiddish altakakas, uh, the old men who just okay. sit around and talk. So, and in return, the Board of Deputies sees the 43 group as idiots, hooligans, jumped up youngsters who are full of themselves, who have no sense of all the good work they're doing. It should also be said that the um, the Board of Deputies has a um, its own spies, its own infiltrators, Um who are also very effective. They were able to bring down plans for two fascist organisations to merge at one point. So they are also, you know, they are active in ways that the 43 group does not realise. I saw, I realised one, there's one incident where a 43 group spy undercover with the fascists is sent to um, guard a fascist organiser who happens to be the board of deputies spy. Oh, there's another good story that I I heard one of the members ex members saying is that uh, he beats up a, a seller of a fascist newspaper and then months later bumps, bumps into him at a 43 group meeting and he's been was undercover at the time and uh, got got the shit kicked out of him I guess that was always happening I think there was always this thing when the the spies came out there was probably a thing of people coming up and apologising to them. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean the board of deputies in as I'm saying hated the 43 group and was forever trying to close it down. And it became a really sort of virulent, nasty argument that began occurring in the pages of the Jewish Chronicle. Right. Um, and they were sort of, you know, letters constantly going back and forth with them ripping into each other. And there was also another organisation called the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen, mm-hmm. Ajax, and they were more, they were attached to... Um, the, what was referred to as the official defence structure, so they were attached to the Board of Deputies. Um, they represented the Jewish ex-servicemen. They were very keen to, to take the fight to the fascists, but only, but once again, within the law. So they would hold meetings and platforms in areas right adjacent to where the, where the fascists were holding meetings. Um, and the 43 Group basically starts as a splinter from them. Mm-hmm. What was the position of the uh, Labour government as, in, in regard to fascist organising? And how did the police treat those meetings? And how did they respond uh, when the 43 group intervened in those meetings? This is quite a, three quite big questions, but sure. if you could... yeah, Absolutely. Um, so in uh, January 1946, um, Clement Attlee convenes a, a cabinet committee on fascism where they basically are charged with determining whether the fascists after the war pose a threat and whether or not existing legislation is deemed uh, suitable enough uh, for dealing with them. Uh, The committee comes back and says that the fascists in their current state do not pose any serious threat. And whilst there is the potential kernels for something to emerge, this shouldn't be taken too seriously at this moment in time. And existing legislation is perfectly satisfactory. 
um, for the next uh, two years, basically, the Home Secretary Tudor Eads, whenever he is asked about this, whenever he is lobbied about this, refers to this, this report and these conclusions. And the government very much has this policy of um, legislation as it currently stands is fine. More important to the government at this period is returning to the principles of liberal democracy. Um, The fascists had to be interned um, during the war. Habeas corpus was suspended. This offends our liberal democratic ideals. We want to, you know, go back to liberal democracy as quickly as possible. The best way we can show this is by ensuring that those people whose political rights we clamped down upon during the war are allowed to, you know, say what they want and do as they please within the limits of the law, as it stands for all. Um, And that is more important to them than um, protecting the rights and the the safety of the Jewish community or any minority communities. So that's the position of the Labour government. The police, you will not be surprised to hear me say, do seem to have rather strong fascist sympathies. <laughs> that is not, of course, the case across the board. You know, individual policemen and, you know, p- police officers and constables can be very uh, supportive of the 43 group. Um, the group tends to realise that those who have ex-service medals on their uniforms are normally more supportive. Sometimes they get a whisper from a policeman saying, you know, give him one from me and etc. But for the most part, there is a strong pro-fascist, anti-Semitic sympathies. This is for a number of reasons. Um, The 1936 Public Order Act means that um, if uh, protection is requested from the police uh, by a speaker at a public meeting, the police have to provide that protection. So that means that if the fascists are having the meeting, they request protection, they're guarded by the police, which means the 43 group and other anti-fascists have to go through the police to get to the um, fascists. So already there is a, you know, the the police are getting the 43 group's way and vice versa, so that's going to cause a lot of antipathy towards them. Then you have pre-existing anti-Semitism, which there is a lot of evidence of. One of the fascist speakers, Jeffrey Hamm, is told very early on that if he comes into Bethnal Green speaking anti-Semitic politics, he will have no problems from the police, um, who tell him about the Public Order Act and tell him how he can weaponize it to uh, pr- protect him. And then you have, you know, many incidents of out-and-out, you know, anti-Semitic violence from the police. In one incident, a man is arrested for heckling and is subsequently, you know, dragged to the ground and beaten up by the police. Someone tries to intervene. They beat him up as well. They drag him into a police station and, you know, the superintendent, who's a man called Charles Satherwaite, has his um, um, constables pin these men to the walls and just starts beating the hell out of them. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, there are some real horrendous uh, uh, incidents of police violence in this story. Um, so there is anti-Semitism as a, a very strong reason for why the police are acting as they do. There is also the fact that the police cannot tell the communists in the 43 group apart. The Communist Party is also very active Um around this period, especially in the summer of 1947, when the most heaviest violence was. And quite often, the communists and the Jews 
and the 43 group look the same because, of course, many members of the Communist Party are Jewish. You know, brothers might, you know, one brother might be in the group, one brother might be in the Communist Party. There were members of the Communist Party who became members of the group. So they look the same. So the police don't really know who is who and they just sort of see them all, you know, as just communist agitators. So just uh, going off that, it's interesting how the Public Order Act, nominally brought in to, against the, the fascists in the 1930s, is, is now being retooled to, to, uh, to help them in the, in the 1940s. Well, right from the outset, the fasc- in 1936, once they were told they could not steward their own meetings, which is what the Public Order Act says, they have to rely on the police and they become much more friendly with the police. Right. Um, and it's interesting as well that these all these kind of the ban on public uniforms uh, just meant that they kind of all dressed very similarly yeah, to yeah. give themselves a paramilitary look. Absolutely. Um, just looking outside of London for a second, because mm-hmm. you said the group was most active in London, but mm-hmm. there were kind of uh, group uh, group activities outside of London. Uh, where was the main kind of uh, outside of London uh, forty through group active? So um, they had regional branches in. In Leeds, in Newcastle, in Newcastle, there was an, an already existing Jewish anti-fascist organisation which renamed itself right. uh, the 43 Group. Um, in Manchester, you have the uh, Manchester Union for Jewish Ex-Servicemen called Mujex. They affiliate with the 43 Group. Um, so you, those are kind of the big ones. Then you have kind of smaller branches cr- cropping up. Uh, nowhere has a sustained... Uh, fascist presence mm-hmm. as London does. So you have um, these anti-fascist organisations and, you know, some of them are coming out when the fascists are holding like street meetings and they're coming out to them, but the fascists aren't as really as active anywhere as they are in London. But they do in 1948 when Oswald Mosley launches the union movement, which brings all these sort of disparate fascist organisations together, they do start going on the road and, you know, taking their meetings various different cities and then you have big anti-fascist turnouts um the biggest of these is in brighton where the police don't offer an, a fascist march any protection and the 43 group local jewish ex-servicemen and the locals have you know a party as they completely tear into the fascists uh, it's interesting that the, uh, obviously different police forces have different responses. So, and obviously in East London, uh, they're very keen on uh, protecting the fascists, but in Brighton, they send two police officers to fulfil their obligations under the Public Order Act or something. Um, now, it's very difficult for like to ask a historian to deal in counterfactuals because you, you have to go what, off what happened and not what could have happened. Um, but if the, I guess going off your kind of research, if the what role did the 43 have in the decline of, of, of post-war British fascism? And if they didn't exist, do you think Mosley would have had more success? What the 43 group did was show the fascists that you could not target the Jewish community without a cost. This was not a community that was in any way willing to take it lying down anymore. So that if you wanted to you know, take a platform into Ridley Road, which had you know, a very strong Jewish presence or any other Jewish area. If you wanted to put up anti-Semitic graffiti or publish anti- or, you know, have anti-Semitic newspapers, that came as a cost. You know, your free speech does harm. Therefore, you invite harm to yourself because, you know, free speech does not mean speech without cost. And the 43 group sh- uh, showed, demonstrated 
to the fascists that they could not do what they wanted anymore. You had to be really, really dedicated to be a fascist. And what that meant was that casual observers, people who, you know, might have been a fascist, might have joined a movement if it was easier to do, if there wasn't a risk that you would be targeted, they began to move away because, you know, they began to see the dangers. If they didn't fancy um, being, um, you know, having a tussle with a whole bunch of Jewish bruisers, you decide not to go to the meeting. And that means the fascist crowds begin to diminish. So the 43 group does begin to kind of put a stranglehold on the fascists. Now, there is an argument that had the 43 group not turned up, not smashed into the fascists, um, the post-war fascist attempts at revival would not have received the press they did. They, you know, In the summer of 1947, it became a national story with the Battle of Ridley Road, and that grew, brought thousands of people to their meetings. But... Publicity for the fascists is not necessarily a bad thing if it's the wrong sort of publicity. Mm -hmm. They were very much trying to legitimize themselves once again. So by associating with them with street violence, you know, you're completely um, undercutting any claim they could make that they could lead responsibly in a, in a time of crisis, which is what Mosley would have liked people to see of him or to think of him as a responsible leader in a time of crisis. So, the 43 group is absolutely, in my opinion, functioning in a way to prevent, both prevent the fascists from really having huge success in getting the numbers they need and making sure they get the wrong form of publicity and showing them that there is a cost to being a fascist and attacking a minority community. Of course, the conditions aren't ripe in this, you know, in the in the late nineteen forties for uh, the fascists to succeed, and the chances of Oswald Mosley becoming prime minister in the early fifties is pretty slim. <laughs> but had it not been for the forty three group, Mosley could have stayed in Britain. He he goes to France and Ireland in nineteen fifty one, and is basically out of the country for the next ten years. And the forty three group, you know made it difficult for him and making it most mostly was somebody who kind of liked it a bit easy. He didn't quite have the sort of the zealous dedication that perhaps Hitler or Mussolini had. You know, there's this uh, theory that one of the reasons he pulled out of the battle of cable street was that he was getting married in Germany two days later. <sighs> he wasn't f as fully committed as he perhaps needed to be. He liked the easier options when the union movement did not succeed it, was obvious it wasn't succeeding in 1948. He began to see himself as the leader of European fascism, where he could just, you know, swan around the Mediterranean meeting other fascist luminaries. So they made it difficult for him. So history would be different if the group hadn't been there. But that, I'm not saying that that means the fascists would have succeeded, but they might have been around more and they might have just continued making it unpleasant for the Jewish community. Um, um, and just thinking through the, the 43 Group's legacy from then to today, um, I guess, well, maybe I'm going off a tangent, but I think anti-Semitic conspiracy theory is, is like an ever-present in most far-right politics. And you can see that mainly today with the, the theory of the Great Replacement, which if you dig down into their kind of rhetoric, uh, is controlled by a shadowy elite of uh, of 
international bankers or whoever they they want to go where they want. Um, do you think it's important to be retelling your story now in this context? Um, I know as a historian, you're a, you're concerned about the past and what happened in the past, but I mean, there's a reason why you the book's coming out now or you're researching the book now, and I wondered what why you wanted to tell it right now in this moment and was it was it just because it happened you just got interested and you started writing it or were there clues in today or clues there were indications of today's society that something like the 43 group needed to be re-put into the conversation it's interesting when i first heard about the group from a friend in 2012 the far right was nothing like it is today um and our original and still one of our intentions and ways to tell the story is as a tv show Right. And it was, you know, our attraction to it was that it was exciting and it was entertaining and it was and it was a story that we as North London Jews had never heard of when we thought, you know, this should be the sort of story that should be have legendary status in the Jewish community. I mean, it's, it's a rip-roaring tale. What can you say? Like, it's really exciting. It's really exciting. Exactly. So originally, I mean, it was very much a, we love this story. We love these characters. This is really... We were really happy to just be researching this and looking into this and telling this story and saw it as inspiring and entertaining. And it was only in when I started writing, pitching the book and writing the book a few years ago, that sort of came around the time of the rise of the, uh, the you know, the right was really beginning to reveal itself as a new force. Once again, I had a, I remember having a pitch meeting for the book the day after the Charlottesville. Right. So showing, beginning to show just how relevant, not quite relevant, but potentially inspirational a story like this could be. And look, anti-fascists have, I'm sure, a whole wealth of various anti-fascist organisations over the past 60, 70 years to draw upon and to be inspired by. And they have, I'm sure lessons could be drawn from the 43 group, but I don't know, you know, it's a completely different period of time. But certainly from the perspective of coming in it, from the Jewish perspective, the perspective of the Jewish community, where there was, there hasn't been quite the same level of anti-fascist resistance that's come up when it's needed to come up. The 43 group had a successor organisation called the 62 group. Mm -hmm. And then there is the, the Community Security Trust, the CST, which very much has a has kept an eye on the, you know, on the, on the fascists and he is very much very conscious of the threats posed to the Jewish community. And then you have Searchlight Magazine, which, you know, has very much kept its eye on the fascists. You know, these coming from the sort of the Jewish anti-fascist perspective. But sort of these, institutionally, the, these organisations are there. But you don't, th what that has meant is there hasn't been perhaps the same level of street-level organising, like getting the kids out into the streets against the fascists in the same way. So for me, having the opportunity to tell this story, I hope potentially inspires people within the Jewish community as well as all other minority communities who could potentially be targeted to show that that it is a wonderful thing to not fear potentially those who would get rid of you and to stand up 
as a community to identify as a community standing up for yourselves and fighting back and showing you know we're strong and we're not going anywhere and on that note um i'm going to probably end this interview here but thank you so much for coming in and, and talking for us it's been i've I've let a lot of new stuff as well, and I've done some research already. Um, the book is called uh, We Fight Fascists, um, uh, and it is available from Verso Books, and every single good bookshop, or any, every good bookshop has to have this book, basically. Um, and I'm really looking forward to reading it as well. I will be at the um, Jewish Book Week on the 1st of March. Um, which is where? In London? In London. Jewish Book Week in London, at King's Place on the 1st of March, where I'll be interview- on stage with some of the members of the 43 group. Oh, exciting. I yeah. will, I'll make sure I'll, I will, I'll get a ticket for that instead of it being sold out. Um, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to support the podcast, you can give us money on our Patreon, which is um, patreon.com slash 12 rules for what? I don't usually do this bit, so it's a bit of a different one. You can also follow our Twitter, which is uh, at 12 rules for what on Twitter. We tweet out all our episodes and you can interact with us and we will eventually get back to you. Um, Other than that, thank you for listening and uh, goodbye. 12 rules.